Welcome back to episode 32 of Everything Aviation Podcast. Just want to give a big shout out to Warbird Coffee Company who keep me fueled and keep my brain power going to f- help plan these podcasts. If you do fancy some really good coffee in your favourite Warbird libraries, please do head over and give them a look. Have a look at their new apparel and their new stuff on their website. You will not be disappointed. Our next guest today is Dan Lowe's. Dan is an ex-RAF Typhoon and Red Arrows pilot. He was part of the RAF 100 flypast over to Queen and Buckingham Palace, and he was also part of the Red Arrows 2019 American Tour. So, Dan, thanks for joining me today. How are we? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very well, thank you. I've been looking forward to this chat for some weeks, so uh, it's good to finally be here. It's good, great to have you here. I know we've, we've just been like ships in the, in the night, just missing each other by by inches, but here we are now. Um, Dan, you have quite an impressive career um, behind you and ahead of you, I think you can say as well. Um, you were on the Typhoon Squadron. You were part of the Red Arrows. Um, you actually got to go on the American tour that you did recently as well, which is really, really cool. Um, and you're a, you're a keynote speaker about operating at high pressures and everything, which is, is not something that people get to say or get to live their life on about. But I'm sure we'll come in and, and talk about that uh, in, in, throughout this, this podcast. But my first question to you would be, I ask everyone this because I find that there's some great stories to be told from this, but where did the interest in aviation come from? For me, it was I was very lucky. I was immersed in it as a child, really. My da- I'm a son of an airline pilot. Um, my mum and dad had been in the Air Force previously, so there's some stories there. They had friends who were in the Air Force who, albeit none of them were in, you know, when when I was born or was old enough to understand what's going on. You know, they all still lived in Hong Kong, which was great, you know, which is uh, an, an amazing place to be brought up anyway in that kind of expat lifestyle. But I also grew up within a flying community you know my all my friends dads flew uh you know you drive past the airport every day to school the the aircraft would fly around the school landing on that kai tak airport which i'm sure you've seen yeah in you know some of those awesome documentaries and so it just kind of always was there you know this you know what it's like you're you're involved with it there's nothing better than that. it's kind of smell of aviation fuel or the sound of an apu driving past it sounds super geeky but if you're into flying you know exactly what i mean yeah uh, and there's things you know like seeing 747s just taxiing at about five knots at night you know, out to the runway and you just think that is awesome that is full of fuel full of passengers full of cargo and they're about to launch off into night so i you know that was the kind of the initial the initial bug for me and as i say because i lived abroad we used to come back to the uk in the summers to see our families and one of the things we would do we get to go to air shows you know something to do on the weekend and that's where i start seeing the more of the, the military side of things you know the helicopters and uh, and the the transport aircraft but then you know it was like the tornadoes the jaguars coming through you know they'd come through faster than you could see them and then that rocket of sound through your through your chest right and it just yeah that would just you just oh it's unbelievable yeah even now it's just i wish i could be sat there watching them it's a shame that so many of them don't display for us anymore and yeah. you see the harry you know come to crowd center you know turn herself around give the crowd a bow and disappear and just thought wow what a life and so yeah it was just there, really. I was, as I say, very lucky in terms of uh, being immersed in it. And then it was then hanging on to that dream and, and, and trying to make it happen. That's so cool. And you see, you mentioned the Harrier. I was at Riot this year um, and the F-35 came past. And mm-hmm. when he did his, his normal flying pass, it didn't seem that impressive. It was like, oh, yeah, cool. An F-35 is not that loud, blah, blah, blah. Then he came down with all the nozzles down. And that was loud. That was very yeah. loud. <laughs> I have to check the fact on this, but I do remember when it first came out, there was some concerns about whether they're going to base it. I think, uh, albeit, yeah, I think it was always in the end going to Marham, well, our ones anyway, where they're based now. And um, 
I do remember someone saying it was it's like the loudest single engine aircraft in the world, possibly. I think oh, there wow. is it's definitely a very powerful, very loud aeroplane. Um, I'm not surprised about that. I, I never put my hands over my ears, but this thing came past and I was stood there. And I, uh, it's <laughs> unbelievably loud. Yeah, I've got a few friends, luckily, who I was who I served with who have now got on to fly it, and they just say it's just an immense machine. You know, they, it clearly was a, a piece of equipment like that. They can never tell you too much, but you know, just in terms of when you see them talking about it. You can you can tell, can't you, with a pilot if they love their aeroplane or not? You can just yeah. see it, and they're super proud. They love flying it, and yeah, apparently it's it's brilliant at what it does. So, yeah, what a what a great aeroplane, and I'm very jealous of the boys that get and girls who strap into that every day of their working life. And what a, what a absolute pleasure! It's an awesome aeroplane, and it's just it's just to see a transition as well because I'd, I'd never seen the Harrier. Growing up in Ireland, we didn't have anything like that. It didn't, never came over for air shows uh, that I remember of, anyway. And this thing, it just sat there, crowd center, and then it turned. And then it was something like out Thunderbirds, where it just went from a hover to down the runway, straight up and disappeared. And it was like, oh, oh cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's like if I, <laughs> yeah, if, I, if, I, if I told someone like four seconds ago there was an airplane there, they wouldn't believe me. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. It's, oh, it's such a cool airplane. Such a cool airplane. Um, and the fact, as you say, you can do stuff like that. Air shows is fantastic, but then you can go stick that on an aircraft carrier and take it all around the world, you know, in terms of force regression as well. And um, just being able to, you know, well, you probably saw the end of last year, they sailed around the world, they did a couple of stuff, went down through the sewers, you know, all the way as, you know, to Southeast Asia and back again. And you can do that with a squadron of F-35s on board. You know, that's, that's pretty big projection, um, both soft and hard military power. So yeah, what a great, what a great airplane. It's really, really cool. And then I take it because I hear your passion now about talking about the F thirty five and you said the Jaguars. Were they, let's say, the Jaguars and Harriers and stuff? Were they your kind of ignition for love of military aviation and wanted to give you that kick into the RAF? Yeah, don't tell anyone who's phoned them. But yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was that was the initial thing. Uh, I, it was it was just yeah, they, they were the ones that turned up the air show. You know, they were the ones that yeah, throughout the nineties, they were our our you know the leading bits of technology they were our frontline aircraft they were the ones you know again i was six or seven when you know the first gulf war was happening and i still remember the images on tv again based out in hong kong so you felt so distant from all but i remember there was just always image of like green or red tracer fire going up into the night and then there'd be some pictures of some RAF jets taxiing back in and yeah kind of sense of adventure and and danger really and it would, but at that time, you know, it was, it was the tornadoes, it was the Jaguars, it was the Buccaneers. You remember, I don't know if you've seen the pictures and they like painted in like desert pink. Yeah, I've seen yeah, that. And then they had all their nose art on them and they would go and meet the tankers and they were dropping into a level, screaming in over the, um, the sand dunes, all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, that's six, seven years old, taking that in. And then next summer you would see that airplane racing along the flight line at an air show in the UK and tying them all together. It was just, yeah, it was awesome. And so, yeah, it was, it was those. And I joined the Air Force you know, hoping to fly Harriers or Jaguars. Uh, and as I went on, you know, unfortunately the Jaguar was taken out of service. So it was the Harrier. Uh, and by the time I finished, you know, I didn't get the Harrier slot. I was very lucky to go onto the Typhoon, which is still immense. And yeah, we got a saying in our family, fate is the hunter. And I was very lucky to have done that because, you know, only, a, only about a year or so later, the Harrier was taken out of service. Um, and so, you know, I'd ended up in Typhoon anyway. And, and those other areas played out. So in the end, I wouldn't have changed anything. But yeah, they were... They were the aircraft I grew up thinking, wow, how, how awesome would that be to fly? 
Brilliant. And you've mentioned the Typhoon, which to me, I still think is probably one of, you know, we've mentioned the F-35. There is some cool other jets out there, but I I still think Typhoon, we we go to air shows to see Blackjack flying around the place, Nanarchy 1 and stuff like that. It's it's an absolute awesome thing. In fact, recently we went down to Eastbourne, uh, myself and my other half our family, and we brought the dog with us for its first air show. And everything he, he's not really pushed about it but typhoon came past and you can actually see his head following this thing around whether it was a noise i don't know but he, he <laughs> stopped and watched the typhoon as well which is quite cool yeah. to see but well, there you go with, with the typhoon i've heard so many things that's got like eight computers it's designed to be unstable and that you have to fight it is that is that true or is it what's it uh, like to well, fly yeah well it's yeah i mean it is it is computer heavy um, and yeah, it is, it's designed essentially to be uh, aerodynamically unstable. And then the computers and the four planes, which are moving, you know, hundreds of times a second, are keeping it keeping it stable. Which means that when you need it to turn, or if you need it to, you know, operate in a certain way, then it it can be used to be a very maneuverable aircraft because it can change its balance quite quickly. Uh, and essentially, again, you know, talking layman's terms, if you can imagine a hose pipe bent in a U bend. And there's a marble in the top. Basically, the four planes are um, keeping those um, moving left and right so that the, you know, the, the marble stayed in the middle. And then as you turn, if you can imagine the marble roll one way, it gives you the weight of the aircraft. It turns. And that's, that's when you get into the, the geekery of it, of the aerodynamics and the science. That's not the best way to explain it. But yeah, that's <laughs> essentially what's happening there. Uh, and yeah, you know, people say you, if the computers fell, you couldn't glide it in and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah that's, that is true. But, you know, there's so many computers, so much redundancy on it. Um, but it's just an awesome airplane. You know, I've been so lucky. I've, I went all around the world with the, I went Southeast Asia, been to the Middle East, operation, um, exercises, sorry, uh, in throughout Europe. Um, and then we've gone and done you know, operational exercises over in North America, you know, working with US Navy, US Air Force, Air Force from all over the world. But what, what that means is we've been very lucky to be put up against some of the best aircraft flown by the best air forces with the best pilots and the typhoon has done well for itself throughout the time you know i've i have been shot and gunned by others but i've also had the uh, pleasure of shooting and gunning you know the likes of f-16s f-18s um we've we did some work with some mig-29s in um oh, wow. which we really enjoyed going up against them um but you know then we've been handed arse on a plate by the f-22 you know and even even that's an honor you know <laughs> but, but the point is you know the, the machine's good enough to be in the arena with those type of airplanes you know and and it was very i was very proud to always arrive somewhere in a in a royal air force typhoon and there was some things that you know it didn't do so well but have got much much better over the years because you know this thing was initially designed in the in the well con- concept was probably late 70s early 80s first first product or the first version of the typhoon the EFA, if you ever remember it called that actually yeah. in 19, 1985 oh wow you know, so you're talking a long time ago but this thing was supposed to fly high and fast and be an air defense platform against the threats of the day uh, and then as you know the threat has changed and how warfare has changed over the last 30 odd years you know it's been dragged into other other realms so now it's a full-up multi-role fighter so not only can it go and do the air defense mission with its long-range missiles short-range missiles and cannon it can also now do some air to surface work so it can now you know strike targets on the ground it can do close air support for troop movement uh, it can do some type of the, the mission could be some type of you know you fight your way in let's say making sure that you go into a contested airspace you you, you lock it down you hold it 
you maintain air superiority while you need to do whatever you need to do on the ground and then you run away before you know, they can come back and get you type thing so it is a full mission platform now uh, and that happened over the process of when i joined and you know it feels so old to say this that you know the guys flying it now you know some of them they don't realize how lucky they are compared to you know how the stuff we had in 2008 when when we were <laughs> learning to fly it like the guys <laughs> ahead of us would be like mate we flew Harriers and Jags that I mentioned already. You don't know you were born. You were flying a, a fly-by-wire, you know, supersonic aircraft that had no issues with performance whatsoever um, that, you know, you didn't even have to think about that. You just had to worry about the tactics. So, yeah, everyone always thinks they've got a hard deal. But that aircraft has developed so much, and, and it is a beautiful, beautiful aircraft. I, I loved, loved flying, as I say, and I was very lucky to, to take it all around the world and, and pitch it on major exercises against other, other air forces. That's awesome. And you mentioned like F-16s, F-18. So that sounds like an F-22 even. That sounds like you, you may have done the exercise red flag out in the States. Uh, yeah, 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 we did that. I, uh, I actually did one, unfortunately. But yeah, I did one of those. Um, and, you know, we just did, we all kind of work up for red flag. That's the major exercise. I'm sure if people involved uh, or listen to, to your pod, I'm sure they would heard it before. Or if they listen to other uh, military aviators talking, um, red flag is almost like the mecca of exercises for us. Now, there's some amazing ones elsewhere. You know, we work in, uh, there's Basar Malima, we work out in um, Malaysia, which is always great. There's um, Magic Carpet in Middle East. There's another one that we call ATLC, which is in Abu Dhabi. So all these cool places, and you get to work with all these nations on major exercises. Uh, and then eventually you go to uh, Red Flag, uh, where you'll put up, you know, that's, that's kind of, I guess we're looking at, if, if I was to compare it to somebody who doesn't know about it, that's like the the major international tournaments. Now we're not there competing against each other, but what I'm saying is like, that's high end. That yeah. is what we work for really hard to get to. That's where we spend weeks and weeks making sure the pilots are at a certain level. If they're not, then we won't take them. Uh, that's when our jets are maintained. So they're going to, you know, for about a month, they're going to be at the top end. Uh, and the mission as well is, is some of the hardest missions you'll fly in peacetime. And, and there's, there's some history behind it. And you know, if you're interested in it, please you know, Google it, go and have a look at it because it is awesome. And there's science behind it as well. You know, it came from essentially the back end of World War II, but going into the Korean War and conflicts we've had since in you know, Vietnam for, for the American Air Force as well. And they saw that a lot of guys who were being shot down were being shot down in their first 10 missions. Uh, and so essentially what, they've, what they have done is design an exercise that pitches the best against the best but you know guys who are well trained lots of hours really good equipment uh, and they put them up against adversaries that mimic tactics of people that you might find yourself against in the next couple of decades uh, and also the equipment you're fighting is also really good you know you're not fighting people who are you know for example in the air force you might go up and you'd be the bad guy for the day and the next day you get to be the good guy that you know they've got squadrons out there as we all know um the red air squadrons that fly frontline aircraft that are high-speed, supersonic, radar-equipped crews, and their tour for three years or not longer is to understand the tactics and they fly it. So it's, they are the bad guys every day of the week. So they're very, yeah. very well-trained. And so, yeah, so we, I was very lucky. 2013, we went out there, we took the squadron out and, um, yeah, got this major exercise. And it happens day and night, you know, so you, you are on it for three weeks and you kind of live in this little bubble where it becomes almost real, you know, it's, you know, and, and, and the situation grows and it gets, it gets more and more difficult. And then they start putting in, uh, the problems become harder. The timeframes become more compressed. There's more and more aircraft in the airspace. There's deconfliction issues. Sometimes weather will play a part. 
you know, and, and it just gets it gets harder and harder and harder and harder. But all the top all the top bits of equipment that you can imagine in a Western Air Force turn up there. Uh, and and it's the only time really you get to you get let loose in that environment without ever having to really do it for real. That's so cool. And you're saying all top hardware. You must see some awesome stuff, such as like I imagine you'd be working with B2s and the stealth things and everything like that. Oh, as I say, yeah, there's all sorts. And you know, the, these things operate to some levels that you know you, not everyone could tell, but you, what you're up to be people see the picture of the jets, jets landing. But yeah, as you say, you see the the, the B2s taken off out there all the time and B1s going in at low level. There's you know, F-16, F-18s, the, the Navy turn up, the US Marine Corps turn up, you know, we turn up with typhoons. We used to go with tornadoes as well and Harriers, and then you'll have the Australians sometimes turn up with their equipment. You'll have wow. F-35s in there, and, you know, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Then you've got all the tankers, then you've got all the AWACS turning up, you know, the airborne early warning systems telling you where to look and what, what what's out there. And, you know, you've got all these aircraft taxi. I mean, and you're taxing out to the runway and it's, it's, it's just nuts. There's just airplanes everywhere. And yeah, that's, that's sometimes the most dangerous part. You, you get airborne, you think, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> you know, there's like, it's just, it's, there's just airplanes. Because we, we um, in, in our Air Force, we just do things, have things slightly differently. And this is another amazing thing is that you, because you get used to how other nations work, whenever you eventually, should you go somewhere, you know how to integrate within a bigger package. So you know that they pre-arm their aircraft in different ways and you know, they have to go to certain places to refuel on the ground or they go and see their engineers just before they take off for a quick once over whereas we just taxi straight out and go yeah so you know that all kind of happens and you have to start deconflicting that because if you you need to get airborne and be there on time but you haven't taken into account that eight jets are going to taxi in front of you and they're going to be there for about five minutes and you're late you know and all these things roll on and then you'll take up that you'll get to the the tanker late so you've taken someone else's refueling brackets and now they're late so now that target's not being hit on time and it sounds ridiculous but all these tiny things they all lead up uh, and eventually you stand there and the debriefs are rightly very long um but there's nothing worse than being sat in an eight hour debrief to find out that you were the one that was the the reason it got worse and worse and worse but yeah it's very cool and in fact i do remember i was i was sat in a in a hold once and i remember looking up and just thinking uh, you feel like you're just by the by you know there by yourself sometimes once you get in the hole you kind of just calm down just for like you know the fight's on type thing and i remember just looking up and just thinking this is nuts you know as you say you know there's b2s and raptors flying around and that yeah their equipment what the americans do in their equipment is just awesome and you just sat there going how a, you feel very small in the whole thing, which you are, but you sit there and think, how on earth have I got here? This is awesome. Yes. Yeah, so, cool. so cool. So, so cool. And with, with the typhoon as well, I suppose, because we talked about air shows and everything like that. And there's one thing I just can't fathom even thinking. And I'm sure you, you do it when you're on exercises and stuff as well. It's like that 9G turn. How? So I've done, I think it was four and a half to five. And I grayed out. I started getting tunnel vision. It hurt. I can't even fathom what 9G feels like. If you were to try and sum it up for us, what, how, how does it feel? Uh, yeah, I mean, how does it feel? It, you are just getting crushed into your chair. You know, you can't lift your hands. You're great. As you just mentioned there, the blood's being sucked out of your, your eyeballs. You're graying out. You're fighting to stay conscious is, is what you're really doing. But, you know, what you wouldn't have had and what we had was um, an amazing um setup of equipment and training so we before we even get into that level of um arena of of g you know we've already sat in a centrifuge machine normally two or three times before we even get there so uh the centrifuge i think it's moving out to cranwell but it used to be down at farnborough airport it's actually a listed building so it's still there in the middle of this like new build 
uh, neighborhood now, but it is there. Uh, but we would go down and we'd get strapped on and we'd have lectures, you know, we'd sit there and people would talk to us like, look, this is what's going to happen. These are, this, this is the theory behind managing G. This is what it's going to do to you uh, physiologically. Uh, this is the things you're going to see. These are things you need to watch out for. And this is how it's going to catch you out. And this is how you're going to um, prepare yourself against it. So, you know, we were well-educated on it, dedicated um, lessons. We were then put in a centrifuge and we'd be taken up to a certain G. I think it was probably about four and a half, five actually, um, without any equipment on. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, you know, the short, sharp breaths, really fighting against it. You know, you're, you are concentrating on, on, as you say, not passing out. You're trying really hard to stay conscious. You're sweating. It's hot. It's horrible. You can't move your, your arms. But the point is you're being exposed to that environment on the ground before you're anywhere near it. And what that does yeah. is, you know, some people do pass out. Some people nearly pass out. Some people don't. But the point is that it's in a, a really controlled environment. And even those that you know, might have passed out, that, that doesn't mean anything other than, right, maybe try this technique or yeah. a bit more education, or, or, or maybe they could just have been, they could have just had a bad night's sleep. That, that, that's how G can affect you in such a weird way. You could have flown for years, have a bad night's sleep and get caught out by you know, a, a, a rapid snap of G and, and not really have thought about it. So especially when you get more experienced and the horrible word of complacency comes in because you do, yeah. um, I'm speaking from experience they might be the only one in the world but i doubt i'm not uh, and you do start to get complacent sometimes so it's it's just teaching that and then they start to put on the kit that i mentioned before so we've got anti-g trousers um for elementary well i say elementary flying training i don't know if they do but they definitely did for i was on the Takano hmm. and then onto the hawk and uh, we would have trousers that inflate so as you get into the in the aircraft the seats actually the the trousers plug into the side of the chair and then as you pull g a valve will open under the pressure of the g and it will take some bypass air off the engine essentially and fill your trousers oh cool and what that does is that essentially as i mentioned to to kind of go for g i mean people can't see i know because we're we're talking but if you can imagine just squeezing it's the opposite to stretching it's like you squeeze every single muscle and you're like breathing like short sharp breaths like yeah, and you're fighting against it and that kind of keeps the blood pressure high and by um, squeezing your muscles is kind of trapping the blood so it doesn't you know it doesn't get drawn away essentially uh from your brain and your eyes too quickly and so what these g-pants do is the g-pants inflate and they kind of grip it's like um you know like a python grips around you these things just crush i say crush that sounds like it's painful it's not it's not really that painful it can be at the higher levels of g's but essentially these things just kind of open up and they just they just grip onto your muscles um they grip and they keep the blood where it is and it stops you uh, it just gives you that extra level uh, of protection and what you know the secretary one of that is that when you're tensing you've got something to tense against you know because these these trousers are inflating and, and pushing into your legs so when you when you're um straining anyway you've you've now got something that's hard to push against anyway i found that always helped and so that buy you another couple of of g's uh, and to the point you know if if we got in the aircraft and we tested our g system or at any point during the flight the g system failed then we would reduce the amount of g we would be pulling in that in that uh flight so it was something that was a mission critical um asset to have so we would understand the fact that you know we're going up against uh, we're going off to do some stuff now and actually we've got less protection than we should have therefore we're going to limit the amount of g so we would actually take the g off uh, you wouldn't be pulling you know seven eight nine g without um a fully functioning g system so now uh, now we're talking about flying the hawk and going up to about six seven eight g so still quite a lot um and with those you didn't tend to snap because uh if you snap there's a very 
real threat of overging the aircraft, which mm. obviously has huge implications with maintenance. And I, I'll tell you an awful story about how I did. And, you know, you've got people working all night, all day for weeks and, you know, just giving you the evils in the corridor, when, you know, in the hangar because you're the one that they're now taking an engine out for. Um, so you don't want to do that. Um, uh, and also you're flying outside the limits of the aircraft, which is the number one thing not to do it for. But um, so you would, you would pull that on slowly. Now, fast forward onto the Typhoon. You've got these G pants. You've also now got a jacket that also inflates around your, oh, wow. your chest. So you've got even more protection now. Uh, and with that thing, you can snap to nine because the computers, as you mentioned earlier, won't let you overdue the aircraft. So no matter what speed you're going, if you just roll and pull, it will go, mm, yeah, you're an idiot. I'm only going <laughs> to give you nine. Right. And uh, so that's that's what it does. Um, and so you you snap straight to nine. All your systems would kick in for you. You'd be tensing. You'd be breathing hard. You'd hopefully have already placed your neck where you need it to go because, you know, if you're now trying to move your neck uh, under that kind of force of gravity, it's a very real issue that, uh, for a very real threat that you can sort of give yourself a neck or a back issue. It's funny you should say that because yeah. even when I was doing the aerobatic course, um, even under where well, we didn't do anything higher than 3G really, but even at 3G, when I was pulling out of stuff and I was moving my head to look, uh, Tuesday and Wednesdays the next few days I could really feel the muscles in my neck being like oh god and that must be terrible for you guys because you guys have a full-on helmet on I just had a headset yeah well it's funny actually um a couple of things there so yes it is you have to be very careful anyway even without a helmet so yeah just I'll talk about that in a moment but and with a helmet on yeah you're adding the weight now they've designed very good helmets yeah everything this is a thing with pilots you would know uh we always want the kit to be better we yeah. always want it to be cheap and we always want it now. And we press every button that says don't press. Essentially, it's like the life of a pilot. So we want a lighter helmet now that costs nothing. Now that's never going to happen. So yeah, that's got years of design. So the helmet we wore was really good, but we'd always want it lighter. So, um, but the equipment I thought we had was, was excellent. But it was very real that you think, right, I'm about to snap to nine here. So you'd probably keep looking forward initially because you'd probably want to be looking at your speed, your G, your height as you set yourself into the fight. Because normally you're going to some type of dogfight issue to be snapping to 9G. And you'd be waiting for the speed to, to reduce under that amount of G. And then you'd be then actioning your next game plan. At that point, very carefully, you would start to think about where, you, where the enemy should be or the, the adversary you're fighting should be. And therefore, now you're going to start placing your head to look for it. So maybe if he was over my right shoulder, I would slowly put my head back. You know, I wouldn't be twisting it in a slicing motion like we tend to move our heads in day-to-day -day life. I would I would move it, put it 90, put it up a bit, put it up a bit. You know, it's very um, specific movements, yeah. knowing that I'm under the G and therefore looking after the, to the neck muscles. Now, most humans have their head weighs about a stone. Is a stone about 13 pounds? I should Google that. I no, I never thought about that. I never thought, oh, I wonder how much I my, my head weighs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And we don't tend to have that much fat in our head. Um, so on average, the human's head is about a stone, no matter what your body shape is and how it is. It just That's just how much they weigh. So, you know, you're going straight to having nine stone on your neck. So the reason your muscles would have been hurting after 3G the other day, is now you've got a three stone head. You know, that is, what's that? I think it's probably about, 15 or 20 kilos wow I'd imagine i think under g i'd have to check that check those maths for me but you, basically your head's probably between at least 10 to 15 kilos on your neck and you're not used to going to the gym and doing 10 to 15 kilos with your neck you know when you yeah. see the formula one drivers with that they've got the um that kind of contraption around their head and their yeah weights left and right that's what they're doing they're strengthening those those muscles so that they're they, they're used to to the kind of g and they're, and they're making sure that a they're protecting their neck and b they're able to 
to to fight against those forces of gravity and obviously then not have the doms which is what you would have had uh, and subsequently leaving the air force um and not using my neck in such a way i've gone down about an inch of a neck size um, oh, well, well. yeah and that just shows you how much we must have been using our neck every day uh, and then you stop using it in that fashion it's only like you know doing bicep curls for yeah. years and then you stop going to the gym and you know your, your arms aren't going to stay as big and that, that's kind of what's happened so you just got to be very careful with with your neck and and how you go so and, and that's one of the harder things when you fly high g aircraft or fighters in in our case is that you could very quickly hurt yourself if you didn't respect mm. that arena and i mean either through um not tensing enough or not preparing yourself right for the g which could then go on and lead to um gray out blackout and eventually you know, loss of consciousness known yeah. as G-lock. Um, or you could be, you know, reacting, moving your head around and, and you can very quickly damage damage those muscles. That's mad. That really, I, I take it, you've given us a quick rundown there, but I take it when you're actually going through this course, there's longer sessions and stuff about all this because it sounds like it's quite something important. And I think people who don't fly or don't, or people who do fly without pulling G, it's not really something they'd, think about um especially that g-lock is a um is a is a thing yeah a, a very real thing and a very dangerous thing you know you're in an aircraft now that to have got such high g you've either snapped to it therefore you're probably in some type of aggressive maneuver or you're going quite fast um to get to that that type of g level where you're going to instantly um and you know go unconscious now thing with g-lock yeah well there's a, two things there one thing it tends to happen quite quickly it tends to be on a snap maneuver. It doesn't tend to be if you catch 4G, let's say, and then ease it to six and ease it to seven to ease it to eight. You're working hard and you can G-lock, but at that point, you're probably a bit more warmed up to it. You're already fighting against it. It's it's kind of when you go from you know one roll, pull, and you go straight to the eights and the nines. That's yeah. when the, the big differential can happen and, that, and that's where you can find yourself in a bit of bother. So, you know, that's that's important to understand like where what maneuver am i going to am i about to snap to this about g i need to be pre-arming now i need to be running in going right i'm already tense i'm not even pulling g i'm tensing you know i'm already tensing so that as i come around the corner i'm good to go not only am i in a good place to now pull that level of g but also if my anti-g system fails i'm already protecting myself as much as i can personally rather than just sat there passively waiting for this g system to to help me out so that that's the big one uh and you know and with the other stuff as well, we're talking about you, sometimes like I say when you were bored, you know, if you're just kind of like messing about, you could be up there like four or five G and you kind of relax a little bit and you get the speckles and then you lose color and then you start to get the tunnel vision as the blood going and then you, you give it a squeeze and it all comes back. Like, oh, that's quite cool. And you kind of relax again and watch it, you know. And so it, it's not always, you know, going going through the processes it isn't always a super aggressive uh, process um, and you can play with it and understand it. And, you know, not that you would ever let it go too far, but you know the fact is when you start to gray get tunnel and you give it a squeeze just like that you know everything comes back you think wow. okay cool it just lets you understand the system a bit more but that's the kind of level you, you sometimes as well if you're in a fight and it's all a bit hot sweaty the jet's a little bit lighter so you got you know you've got a bit more performance and, and your jets racing around the corner and you're just really struggling and you do you start to get the, the kind of speckles and you let's say you take the shot you roll out and you kind of for a moment you're kind of like doing that kind of like double blinking when you walk out from the shade into the sun if that makes sense yeah and you kind of got those speckles in your eyes and you think yeah that was uh that was a bit aggressive in a way you go but that whole time you know you are just getting pushed you get things as well in in your forearms where they were called g measles like the ends of your capillaries would burst under the pressure oh, wow because you couldn't lift your arms right at these things so you come down and you'd have like little speckles in your forearms you know the guys had just done a, a high g flight 
but yeah, I mean, it's an aggressive, it is an aggressive environment. Yeah. Even, I, I'm sure some of us um, have taken a roundabout, maybe a bit too fast, that kind of movement where you get pushed sideways in your car. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the force. Yeah. You're not fighting. You can't instantly just push back. You got, you got to wait for, to roll out of that corner to be able to straighten yourself up again. But that's kind of what you're doing. You're going around roundabouts sometimes in these dog fights, but big roundabouts in the sky, if you imagine them at 450, 500 miles an hour. So yeah, you're getting pinned. If you think you're getting pinned sideways, fine, but we're actually, the car's rotated on its side. So you're getting pushed into your seat. So you're trying to hold onto your steering wheel. Your hands will be getting sucked, essentially like pulled, sucked down off the steering wheel. So you're fighting to keep them up there. You know, you got to change gear. But when you go to move your hand to the the gear knob, you because of the G's pushing your hand down, it's not like you could just move it as you would expect in your car. It gets snapped down. So you got to be very aware of where you're moving yourself in the cockpit. You got to be very aware with how your um, what your next move is because you got to understand. Like I've now got to move my hand up here. Let's say I've got to move my head as I keep saying. So it's it's not something you can just react to the whole time. It's a very aggressive environment, aggressive environment to be in, and it takes years and years of practice and understanding to get to a point where you, know, you, you basically not only do you survive but you revel in it. Yeah, that's mad. That's so, there's a, a lot to it as, as you say, and I'm I'm sure we'll touch on this um, in in a few minutes again with, with your red arrow stuff because again. I think you're pulling quite a high G with them as well. Um, but we mentioned red flag, uh, which was an exercise and kind of, I think real exercises that you've done has been, been QRA um, where you are protecting the country against anyone that wants to do, do harm to it. Um, and I think you've, you've got to fly up uh, beside some kind of cool airplanes as to say. I, I was very lucky. I, there's a, um, there's a lot you can read as well online. So if, uh, if you want to go and, you kind of see what the guys are doing it's not always abroad that we're involved in some type of operation and i'm not just talking fighters you, know, you think about you know what the helicopter guys are up to and especially when they're taking aid around the country after floods or you know moving people around should they need it and then you've got you know the um you saw the transport guys they do a lot of stuff abroad but even more recently you saw what an amazing job that c-17 crew did uh, bringing her majesty back down from mm-hmm. aberdeen so there's a lot of stuff we do inside the country as well as abroad and, and one of the things is to protect the integrity of our skies our international borders uh, and so yeah we have aircraft uh, in the uk um what is known as quick reaction alert and there's a number of them uh, fully armed 24 hours a day seven days of the week 365 days of the year uh, and clearly there are guys sat with them ready to go so should there be any bother it's not always just um an aggressive stance it normally tends to start that way there's normally been a missed radio call or someone's not has gone off their flight plan which is always a bit awkward and, you know and you want to want to know why especially with the events over the last 20 years you know people have weaponized aircraft so that's always a big concern in the back of everyone's mind and yeah. so you know that's not going to be acceptable here so we'll do our best to make sure we can you know make sure any of that kind of drama is averted whenever we can oh, but there's some amazing stories out there of pilots who have lost their vision whilst flying or had heart attacks or have lost their radios and tornado and typhoon crews have got airborne to go and look after them and have you know instruct them how to land safely at airports as well and have been rewarded with with medals for their service so yeah that's that's the the other side of it um but yeah i was really lucky i did some time in um qra in england i did some time up in scotland uh, and our main uh, scrambles were against you know russian long-range russian aircraft and again go and have a little look on google I, yeah, the bear hotels was the type of aircraft they bring over mad yeah, we, looking machines oh amazing and they've got these contra rotating props and they've got four engines so they've got eight of these props going around you hear them before you see them sometimes you know especially at night or in clouds you, you just hear this like 
like oh, wow this is nuts how can i hear a propeller airplane but you can uh, and yeah you pull alongside them um they don't really want you there as such and and yeah they are in international airspace they're not in our airspace but it's still the fact that they're, they're close enough for us to say don't don't try it yeah uh, and and that's what they do and they come on these big long-range missions uh, and we'll, we'll go up we'll refuel we'll stay alongside them there's a bunch of safety issues in there as well you know by our rate our radar operators knowing where we are then we definitely know where they are so it also helps safe up the air picture for general air users because they you know, they're they they're on whatever they're doing. Um, they don't always recognize the uh, integrity of some of the airspace they fly through. Yeah. So uh, of which we'll have air users in. So we make sure they're safe. Uh, and obviously we make sure they don't trip into our into our airspace, which they've never done, um, especially in the time I was there. But you know, they like to they like to project uh, and they get quite close. And then we just eventually they spin around. You know, it gets friendlier as the mission goes on. And this is the thing, you know, they've been doing this since the 70s, if not earlier, you know, and we're just doing our job they're just doing their job yeah and so eventually after about you know a couple hours worth eventually you might get a, a bit of a wave and eventually yeah there's uh there's the tail gunner will be waving because they've still got tail gunners the pipes <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually you know they kind of give you a bit of a wing waggle and they climb up and disappear and they head back up uh, to russia you know so it, it sounds like a good day out clearly it's there is a a darker side to these kind of things like there is with anything but you know they're doing what they need to do uh, and we're just making sure it doesn't affect us our country or our air users uh, and we're there in case we need to be used you know we, we, we turn up fully armed uh, it's just like a, a police unit in a way responding to a serious you know to a possible crime just making sure everything's yeah. fine and then yeah they go home and we go back for uh, i say tea medals it's not really worth the medal we just have some tea go to bed <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's it yeah and, and every now and then, yeah i only ever intercepted uh, bears so i was very lucky to go i think at 10 uh 10 bears or something yeah and, and, yeah wow that's quite a bit great, still yeah they're great looking airplanes but every now and then they send a blackjack or something and uh, there's a few boys on the squadron we get those and you're always insanely jealous that they got the, <laughs> they got the cooler jet <laughs> so <laughs> yeah that, that's that kind of life and you know the guys are there as i say there's um there's always someone looking over our airspace to make sure everything's safe and that's that's right down from you know the boys and girls working the the radars and making sure the air pitchers safe all the way up through the command chain that then eventually will launch airplanes should they need to be there um to make sure that you know we, we maintain the integrity of our airspace uh, when we do that all the time uh, and to help anyone who's in a bit of strife that's all so that's really cool then because that means that shows that like, you're talking about the controllers and stuff that it's not just everyone looks at the raf and thinks pilot but there's a lot more to it rather than just pilot oh so much so much more you know that's that's the bit that you see happening at the end and that is what it's all about you know it's like to you know to to bones about it and as a pilot i'm obviously i'm going to be more biased towards that opinion but you know everyone there is about doing a good job maintaining the integrity of our airspace going on operations and, and making sure that the uk is is relevant and able to do its job professionally expeditiously anywhere in the world at any time but at the end of the day you know that force is about getting airplanes airborne and that is about getting you know, Hercules Airborne to go and do whatever mission they're on. The A400s take aid and troops all around the world. It's about the C-17 doing the same thing. It's about Voyagers getting everyone to refuel fighter aircraft whilst also taking, you know, uh, crews and people around the world. It's about the helicopters, you know, heavy lifting. It's about the helicopters picking up troops and moving them around. It's about them maybe getting involved in special forces missions. It's about, it's all about that at the end of the day. It's not just about the fighters, but yeah, it's, it's about getting airplanes airborne and, and getting a job done. 
Yeah, and that, that's it. I know they're moving into other realms, moving more into cyber as well. So that's becoming a big part of it. Um, and that's it. But what what I think, as you say, some people forget is that it's not just the the one, two or three people that sat on that airplane at the time operating it. It's take that stage back. It's hundreds of engineers on every squadron working day and night tirelessly to make sure those aircraft are serviceable. And not only that, not doing it just at home, they're doing it in the heat of the desert or, you know, being freezing at two o'clock in the morning because the airfield's at quite a high altitude and, and working whatever they've got to make sure those airplanes turn around the next day. Then behind that, you've got all the people who refuel it. They've got all the ops people who write all the flight plans to work out the programs for the guys to fly. You've all got air traffic controllers making sure that we can take off and fit into the air pitch. And then you've got all the people that you see in London or in, in High Wycombe or all those other bases around that you know, feed into the intelligence picture who are uh, making decisions on what equipment to get in the future so that they, we remain relevant and at the forefront of of what's happening so i mean it's a huge 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 organization um one that i i love to bits and think's fantastic but yeah there's there's yeah don't just think it's those one two or three people strapped to the airplane at the end of the day or the bit that's sometimes what you see because you see helicopters and as i mentioned multi-engine fighter aircraft flying around the country or going to the air shows um it's a shame sometimes you don't get to see everything that happens behind but um, none of those, not one of those things would happen if all those things weren't in place to get get to that end result. That's so cool. I think one of the things that does stand out um, that you say people do actually get to see is like when you go to Rio and you look at the blues who are attached to the Red Arrows. And it's the first time I think people kind of get that inkling that, yeah, there's more than just 11 pilots part of the Red Arrows. There's a whole team of guys looking after and girls looking after these aircraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the uh, the Reds is quite a good window for people to go off and see that. You know, um, the Blues are huge. They, that's, they're known as much as the Reds, and especially people who are involved with the with the circuit. And if you go to an air show and you haven't seen that, I encourage you to go and to an air show where you will see the Reds. You start up, taxi out and take off, because what you'll also see is everything that happens around the airplanes when the pilots aren't there. And you'll see when we arrive, the first thing that happens is we'll all jump out, but the engineers will ask us about what's happening with the airplane, where we're going, you know, what do you need doing? They, they, there's an instant, it's like a pit crew, you know, they're there instantly ready to, to fix aircraft. And I can tell you now, you know, you've landed, we've landed places in the past where the jets aren't ready to go. And an hour and a half, two hours later, they are ready to go because they've wow. just worked. Yeah, absolutely worked their socks off to make sure you're ready to dispatch uh, for the show uh, in yeah a couple of hours after arriving somewhere. But Watch them when the pilots aren't around. Watch them how they interact. Watch their communication. Watch their how diligent they are to the tiny details. You'll see some of them like clean the airplane like it's their their own. You'll see other ones doing paperwork to make sure everything's um, set up, ready to go. So when the pilot turns up, it's all in place. They just need to quick read it, make sure it's good to go, sign it, and uh, and and head out to the jet. You know, you'll see them making sure the tire pressures are good. You'll see them checking the engines. You, you'll see uh, an articulated lorry turning up with all the spare parts that then needs to be in three, four different places in the country over that weekend. Wow. So it's all this stuff happening behind. You'll see them, and especially the the die team. You'll see them. They're, they're quite famous as well. You'll see them shouting at each other, dressed in their spacesuits, um, <laughs> even though it's 35, 40 degrees sometimes out there. And they're they're you know they're filling up all the all the um, the fluid into the smoke pod that obviously you need to to make the show happen. And, and yeah, that's five minutes of white, one minute of red, one minute of blue. So you've really not got much in there at all and they're they're making sure it's it's exact because if they don't fill it up enough then you've obviously got less than that that's not gonna last <laughs> the entire of the show so you know it's 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 bigger and i and obviously that's it's cool because they then jump in the back of the jets with us there's not many flying roles that the engineers get to fly uh with you especially mm. in the fast jet world 
So that an engineer, A, gets to find the jet is an amazing thing to happen anyway, but then you form a real close relationship with that, with that engineer. And each engineer is assigned to each position each year. Um, and it's just, it's just a great way. You know, you've got someone in there to chat to, you've got someone in it's really cool because then you can talk to them about what you think needs to happen when we land. They can feed that back into the engineering side. Uh, and it also inspires the next generation of engineers on that team to want to be in the jet the next year, you know, so you get people working harder and harder and harder. And, and what's really cool, the way in which they're, they're selected is they're essentially selected by their own, you know, they're by their peers. Yeah. And so, you know, there's those that work hard, those that know their trade, they're credible, they know exactly what they're up to, they work hard, they're team players. And um, so all these things go into how they get selected, but then it's voted by those that they work with. So, you know, we all know people at work who, there's the odd one here and there who tries to get one over on someone. So they, you know, to get further in life. And so very quickly that can't happen because yeah. your, your team members aren't going to vote for you. If you're the kind of person who, who turns up late, goes home early and, and, you know, works really hard when the boss is there, it can't be asked when they're not. Yeah. That's not the kind of person we want. So they, those people don't, you find them less and less of them in the workplace because it's designed to, to um, award those that are the best within their own team, which I think is really cool. And then they get to strap into a jet and fly around the world with us. It's just, so, you know, it's just epic. It's awesome. I had a blues on actually Ben Kennedy, who was um part of oh, the yeah. yeah, he he came on to me. Oh Jesus, about a year and a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago. Uh, yeah, that's probably um, about, uh, yeah, probably about two and a half since I've last seen him. How's he going? Oh, wow. Yeah, he was really good. Really, really good. Um, oh, cool. And he talks about some of the experiences you you talked about as well. But he said one of the cool things was uh, like you said, inspires people to get and fly in the back of the jet. And he said it's really strange as an engineer having been on frontline squadrons and everything, coming onto the RAF and someone handing you a G suit and a helmet and be like, right, jump in. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's such an awesome thing for them uh, to experience, and it's awesome for us to experience as well. It's not a one way street. That you know, the fact that you do start to um, grow relationships with people that you, you you know, it's very difficult sometimes because where the pilots and the engineers sit on squadrons can be quite uh, dislocated. Yeah, you know, two different buildings, uh, and then there's a rank structure, and then sometimes you know there's people react differently under pressure. So if you're turning up and you're late and the jet's not ready and the fuel's not there, but you've got to go now and yeah, these tensions can grow. And sometimes you know, maybe it's, it's not always um, uh, as nice as it should be in that environment, yeah. I should say, but you, you get to go on relationship. I'm not saying it's horrible, but there's some people can let themselves down or some people come across as the wrong type of character in a stressful environment or, or whatever it may be. Some people don't take enough time to go and know those around them that support them, which is something I would encourage everyone to do. But the, the fact is that we get exposed to another side of the Royal Air Force that we haven't had that close a relationship with maybe sometimes yeah. on some squadrons. Uh, and you form these awesome relationships. And it's just, it's just really cool. I, I, I just, I, it was the best thing. You know, it's obviously awesome to display the jet. And that was awesome. And we would never display with an engineer in there because there's no point adding an extra risk level to it. Mm. But we would transit to all the different air shows with them. And so, you know, they jump in and they'd be, buzzing about something and then we get somewhere and we we do the show they get back in we'd be buzzing about something and they'd sit there and listen ask questions and you know, i was just it, honestly it was just such a cool cool environment and i you know i had three really good guys over my three years you get a different engineer each time uh jay dan and then dino were my three uh circus chaps over over that time and every single one of them you know i just had such such an amazing 
you know, amount of uh, banter or, you know, we'd rip each other apart or we'd go and see stuff. You'd be like, mate, look at that. And they, you know, they'd be looking, you know, you mean to look right. They'd look left and miss it. Like, oh, you, idiot. <laughs> you know, or, you know, I'd ask them some ridiculous question about engineering. I had no idea, but you know, sometimes we'd be sat there just talking about cloud structure, which sounds so boring, but, and so weird, but it's just so nice to be sat there with someone who's appreciating flight so much. Yeah. And you're able to, yeah, they kind of sometimes they just remind you of the stuff that you take for granted how amazing that environment is you know we yeah. take off and fly around clouds mm, of course you do you're a pilot but when you try and explain to someone how they form and how they grow why they're so massive in certain parts of the areas how much you know water a storm cloud holds why is it in a certain structure and you start to see these things and like you you realize the beauty in them again and when you see that for someone who's seen it again for the first time in that environment you think oh yeah this is this is cool it's, it's a beautiful place to be that's really cool. It's great to hear you talk with such enthusiasm about it as well. And it must be great as well, because you mentioned to sit there in transit. It must be great just having that little bit of company as well on a, a transit, someone to chat to, and like you said, have banter with, even though I know you're concentrating on the other jet that you're flying on, but it must be great to, to have a go. Nah, single seat, single seat all the way. It's, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, yeah, no, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, as you say, I, I do love talking. I probably talk too much, but yeah, I, I love it. And I love having that kind of environment with someone and having that bit of banter and having that level of trust and having that kind of teamwork and you know i've left the service subsequently and fly multi-crew airplanes now and it's fantastic to be able to see how someone else flies learn from someone in person rather than talking about it on the ground and try and replicate it and as you say especially on the longer flights have, have have company and you know it's quite nice when it gets a bit dicey and you've got through it, you come out the other side yeah, and there's a couple of stories in there that you you got someone there to kind of reassure you say oh, it's all cool or you know what happened there and you kind of break it down and realize actually it wasn't that bad let's just crack on so yeah yeah it's it's really good and yeah flying long distances by yourself is yeah it can be super boring so just to be able to just be able to in fact McDan and i used to see how long we could fly for speaking in an australian accent i don't know it's just <laughs> it's just stupid just stupid but at first want to go back into an english accent failed so it's just stupid stuff like that you, you sit there going how have we got ourselves into this situation <laughs> i love it i absolutely love it so let's talk about your time in the reds dan because i think you took i think it was a three attempts to get in yeah that's right yeah and i think you're only allowed three aren't you well, I hope not. But well, <laughs> the point with the, the game plan was just to keep turning up till they said, "Dude, <laughs> piss off." But um, yeah, the uh, the first one—it's it's a very weird environment in terms of where you place yourself and where you think you need to be versus where you actually really need to be. And it's the big lesson in life of just you know being prepared. You, you, you need the vision to go because I think if you have the vision of where you want to go, that gives you that natural drive because yeah. you think, well, if I if I want to be here. I'm going to have to behave in this certain way, or I'm going to have to position myself in a certain way to get there. So you already start to behave in certain ways to go there. You can't just turn up and chance it. And that's not just getting the reds. That's everything in life. You know, yeah. you can't just go to an interview and chance it. I'm sure people have, and they might say, oh, it's, you know, you, you're talking, you know, talking shit, but it's, you're not, you know, if you're going for the big jobs that you really want that are competitive and have a high caliber of individual applying for them, you tend to have wanted to have wanted it for a long time. Therefore, you're going to prepare yourself and you're going to go and you're going to go, you know, go and give you a best shot. Yeah. There's certain things you need. You need 1,500 hours of flying to, you need to be above average. You need to be a fast jet pilot to apply in the Reds anyway. And then it's normally a couple of applications before you get to eventually what they call the shortlist. The shortlist is every year they, they get the nominations down to nine pilots. Those nine pilots will go away to the Red Arrows training camp where you spend a week with the team. That's breakfast lunch, dinner, fly three times a day with them. You go for a, 
you know, some social events as well. You go to some pretty serious events uh, at um, like the embassy uh, when you're abroad wow. and you'll also have a formal interview. You'll have a flying test and every now and then you'll get like a bit of a random um, TV interview, you know, just out of nowhere, a mock TV interview. Cause yeah, yeah, you have to be able to, to hold that kind of stuff. Cause it's, it's amazing thing. Yeah. You turn up to be an RAF um, or a red arrows, display pilot well it's a bit bigger than that actually you're you're an ambassador for the service you're an ambassador for the country a lot of the times um and so it's not just going to be about oh tell me about that 22 minutes of flying people can start asking you all sorts of random questions and we're not diplomats or politicians but it helps if you are a bit more uh, grounded in some areas and a bit more level level head on some stuff so you know you get some awkward questions thrown in it was quite funny um, you mentioned that actually because at the head corn air show i was at red 10 was on the ground and all the bad press had just come out from this year, um, kind of a week beforehand. And the poor mm-hmm. fella, there was people in the crowd just grilling this this um, poor red ten um, over everything. And he was yeah. he was doing a pretty good job at, at, do, at, at <laughs> yeah. doing his job. It was very good to watch. Yeah, I, well, I know Muskie very well, who is the current red ten. He's a lovely, lovely chap. So I do encourage you if you see him at another air show, you can say hello and give him some banter but probably just ask him nicer questions yeah <laughs> is what I'm saying. but that's that, that's 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 what's going to happen right and especially in you know a high-paced uh, dynamic environment sometimes you know especially with the flying stuff there could be a small safety issue or there might be something that comes out that we've seen in the press where the aircraft can't fly for a few hours because they need to check some maintenance issue and so those questions are going to get asked all the time so you know you've got to you you've, you've got to be able to compartmentalize what you're saying put it in a way that you're not going to uh, put your foot in it if if at all answer something nicely and put them onto a pr team you know, type thing if you can and so you know that's why red 10 does such a good job and you know well gray muscat i call him musky but um if you check out gray muscat and have a look at the next air show please go and say hello to him because he's a lovely dude uh and he you know he's got all those kind of answers but he's having to juggle that the whole time whilst also working out what the wind is what the airspace is looking like what's the cloud structure looking like for the the team that's running in so he's he's got a very very busy job uh, but going back to kind of the selection process is you, you've got all that going on and so you know there's huge lessons for me and uh, hopefully people learn from all of our lessons but you know today if, if i tell you something it was about being natural versus being about how i thought i needed to be so i remember my first selection process i got taken you know i was allowed to go on the shortlist and i was you know buzzing but nervous i thought this is my shot this is what i've dreamed about this is you've got to make this happen and because of that I kind of clammed up, you know, I, yeah. I spoke in questions. I wasn't very natural. I didn't particularly find the airplane very well because as you know, like anything, you, this is your, you're, you're up there, you're on red one's wing and you haven't do loops and rolls and you want to show them that you're the best pilot that's ever been in the world. And so you overthink it, yeah. you overfly it. You're not natural. And that tends to happen, doesn't it? When we're going for these big interviews, you get, you know, dry mouths, we sweat loads. You think, I don't understand. Like I, I thought I was in control of my yeah. body. Like what, how on earth is this happening? And so, yeah, the first time, yeah, I, I wasn't, I probably put not too much pressure on myself because I think you need a level of stress and pressure to, to perform. But I, I think I just over, overthought it, wasn't myself and probably didn't represent myself as well as I, mm. as I could have done, should have done. Uh, and so unfortunately I wasn't, I wasn't successful my first round. And, you know, the second, the second round I was shortlisted, but there was some, um, some manning issues elsewhere. I, I, at the same time, I was a, uh, qualified weapons instructor which is our, we have a weapons school uh, that you graduate from and you become a weapons instructor and so I was that now 
they're, they're very well-trained individuals that as in there's a lot of assets, a lot of money, a lot of time invested in getting you to the certain level. And there's a minimum requirement of, of how many of those needs. So you would expect one on every, if not two on every squadron, because they develop tactics. If they can, they train, um, all divisions of the flying side of the squadron. So that's senior officers down to brand new pilots, but they also, you know, they review all the weapon strikes if they need to, or they, you know, they're like the, they're the weapons guys or the, or the tactics guys and, and leaders of, of the squadron really. And so you can't not have them. Yeah. And so unfortunately my second, second year, for whatever reason, they didn't have enough elsewhere. So I, I it just, it didn't make sense for me to leave. Um, so that's a real shame. Obviously I was clearly disappointed about that because I felt, you know, Oh, that's not my fault, but you, yeah, you know, and then and then you grow up and realize that mate, look, that's just how the how the cookie crumbles. Like if you're if you're gonna push yourself and be um you know the best you want to be, which is what I've always done, and you're gonna get yourself to a position where unfortunately a lot of money, a lot of time has been um put into your expertise, you've now put yourself on a pedestal where you needed, then it's gonna be difficult, it's gonna be very difficult to justify why you should leave that position. So yeah, it's kind of a catch, catch twenty-two. But anyway, so that's happened the second time. And then the third time, I think you kind of just put all those put all those things together. Now there was a few other things that I had been frustrated with elsewhere. So I was already coming up with other plans where I might position myself, whether that be to stay in the service or to leave. And so I kind of felt like, well, I've got a good plan B, C, D. Yeah. It's all going to be okay. So I think maybe the third time I turned up and this is the going back to my point for someone listening. Yeah. I turned up and I just, you know, obviously I was nervous. You want to represent yourself. I wasn't, you know, flippant or arrogant, but I kind of turned up and I was like, right, just try and be, more of who you are show a bit more of your character yeah. you know don't don't have to ask questions all day long you know, why why yeah <laughs> yeah, like, yeah you can actually just talk to these guys like they used to be on the squadrons with you you know you can just talk to the even though they're still rocking around and well they're green suits but flying red jets you just think ah, oh, this is this is megan it's easy to get enveloped into that environment it's like right look you're just here to talk to them you're here to show them who you are and they'll either select you or they won't and it's kind of that controlling the controllable side of stuff. You know, it's, it's understanding when you're getting nervous, taking a moment to control that, you know, you see in a situation, it's actually, you know, that that's really interesting. You know, it's asking a question about that, but then thinking, okay, cool. Taking the question on board and then you don't need to talk now or when they're flying, you know, taking a moment to understand what they're doing. So you can engage them in conversation as to, you know, why they did a certain thing, but understanding when you can ask them, you know, so, yeah. so that, that, that kind of came through and then, yeah, I, I was just very lucky um, and it, it all lined up for me. And so in 2016, I, I passed that selection process uh, and I joined them in this um, July. Yeah. June, July, 2016, which is really cool. They, in fact, they'd just gone to China. I don't know if you've seen them went on that mega tour to China yeah. in 2016. So our first job was after the team deployed, we were writing all the maps for their onward trips back in the UK. <laughs> and I was there with a uh, chap, you know, Toby Keeley, another guy, Chris Lyndon Smith, known as Smythe. Uh, and we kind of, did some planning and, and, and um, I guess some logistical support and help from back in the UK. Uh, and then eventually we flew out to meet the team in India, um, which was just awesome. So our first actual exposure being in the team, having just been selected was landing in Delhi and seeing them turn up. <laughs> this is just nuts. And, you know, it went through India, then down through Southeast Asia and they went on to, to China and we went to, we left them in Kuala Lumpur and came back and started our training so that when the team eventually came home, um, we were in a position that you know we could get in the seat and start training pretty quickly. So yeah, oh wow, I didn't realize you could train while they were away. That's quite cool to know. Yeah, it's it, it was very candid, as in, um, and we only managed to do it really because uh, this chap Chris Lyndon Smith I mentioned had been in the team previously in the early teens. Oh okay, uh, and he had gone on to well, I say got in in the early teens. So he must have 
uh, left 14. I, I can't remember his, his exact dates, but something like that. And then he went to a hundred squadron, which is a Hawk squadron up at Leeming. Unfortunately, they've just been stood down, but um, that's where they were. So because of his experience, uh, not only having been a Red Arrow previously, but also a very experienced Hawk pilot, he was able to do not, not full display type stuff, yeah. but he was able to take me and Tobes up and show us how to turn left, turn right. It sounds ridiculous, but when you break it back down, that's the thing, you know, when you, you talk about people when they when they join the military and they get broke, yeah, you know, they break you down. Yeah. And then from being a civilian, they bring you back up as you know, as a military recruit, that's kind of how it works with the Reds in a weird way. You know, you turn up there with a couple thousand hours flying fighters and they're back down to teaching you how to turn left and right. And it's only <laughs> because there's set techniques and you've got to do it to voice rather than sight and all this kind of weird stuff. But there's a definite technique to it. And so you sat there for hours on end, just going left, right, left, right, do a loop, do a roll, left, right, left, right, do a loop, do a roll. And to the point that you can fit in with the way in which the team do it. And then yeah. you can start your training. Then. And then Red Bull came back and, uh, and he started started the work up and it was yeah this is awesome i mean it's just a it's just a mega experience in those days you you never forget you know just getting in a hawk again which is quite a basic aircraft having come come from a very you know well a a high powered but a very technologically technologically advanced fighter uh, and you're back in the hawk and i remember someone saying to me i was like oh what what are the buttons do they said look anything that it's so old that any of the buttons that are shiny, just press those ones because they're the ones that get pressed the most. And pretty much, pretty much, although you can't obviously diligently follow all your checklists, you pretty much just press all the shiny buttons forward and the jet starts. And it's and yet you, you can start that thing up in about two and a half, three minutes. It's amazing. Wow, that's it was great. just so cool. It was just so cool not having to like warm the radar up or you know check that the fuel was you know, going in certain areas. It was just so simple, and um, it was just lovely to go back to flying a just a pure mechanical jet again. That's so cool. And then you got to do some really cool stuff when you were in the team, um, like the RAF 100 um, fly pass with 100 aircraft. What was that like? Yeah, yeah, phenomenal. I mean, I still get goosebumps talking about it now, but the, the just going back to the point of not getting in the team for the third time, this is going back to people. I was very lucky recently in some in another podcast I do to um, talk to the founder of Reebok, if I may, for a sec. And yeah, wow. I talked to him about some stuff and he he came from a family uh, of shoemakers uh, but they took it in his own direction uh, and one of the things is and this is something i'm you know leading on to your question is that when they moved from their family business they eventually realized that they needed to go and corner america so in the late 50s early 60s they started going to america and every year every year he would go to the same conference to find a distributor to start selling reebok shoes and so he went for 11 years every year he turned up and this is Reebok we're talking about right and Reebok's yeah. nothing to anyone at this moment in time really um they've had some big success elsewhere but in America who are these guys uh and you know turned up every year for 11 years and they got wow. eventually and then look where Reebok are you know at, at one yeah. point in the 80s they were bigger than Adidas and Nike you know so there's a lesson here about if you have a dream you have a vision and you have the ambition and the fire to go for it don't worry about failing don't embrace that but just mm. keep turning up keep turning up because took me three attempts to at any one of those times i could have gone ah you know no i can't yeah. be bothered i'm going elsewhere and it just shows you as well because going on to your question about the rf 100 you know my three years which i would, would eventually go on to fly i just think i was so lucky to have got those and i'm so proud you know the first year we finished the season with a six-week tour of uh, the Middle East, which the year before I wouldn't have done. Um, and had I gotten the year before, I'd been leaving in 2018. So, 
you know, 2018, as you mentioned, the RF100 flypass. I'll talk to you about that in a sec. And then, you know, I would have left there. And yeah. then I eventually uh, left in 2019, end of 2019, having come back from, you know, three and a half month tour of North America, which, you know, the biggest North American tour for the team in its history. So, you know, when you talk about um, what we, we said then, don't always worry about it. Had I gotten the first time, these amazing experiences I wouldn't have had. Yeah. So yeah, I'm very lucky to have got in on the day I got in or the year I got in and then to go off and have the experiences I, I had. I think that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. Now the RF 100 fly past and I, I knew I was going away from it. Now that day was epic. So it was a beautiful day over London. I think it was the 10th of July, uh, 2018, uh, but it was a beautiful day over London, but it was actually, the weather was a bit, bit scotchy over Lincolnshire and the, and the North Sea. So all these jets, helicopters, if you imagine the whole, organization that need to go into this you've got helicopters doing if there's helicopter pilots listening they'll be like oh what an Id- idiot like you know they're going probably like 80 90 knots i'm sure they're doing like 150 i'm not sure what they're doing anyway they're not going as fast you know yeah and then you've got the you've got the multi-engine airplanes that come through at certain speed and then you've got the fighters at the end so if you can imagine a slinky that's going to catch up with each other pretty quick so it's a lot of planning you have to be on high on speed on time or else the whole thing just wasn't going to work and anyway we took off we took off uh, on time and uh, headed out to our holding area over the sea. And there's lots of people holding everywhere, but because the weather was so bad, we're actually quite low, uh, albeit we were, you know, well within inside the, the minimums we had, but I remember mm. holding low over the sea, which is, it's just not as comfortable as holding a bit higher with a bit more space. You know, you yeah. kind of get that, you get a bit of in the turns, you get a bit in the ground rush o- off the ocean. And uh, one of the jets actually had failed to start, properly so one of the guys had to jump out and go into the spare aircraft but we couldn't wait for them so we just had to go oh wow yeah so it's like okay fine so already you're thinking right we're on plan b here we're we're we're, we're trained to do this it's no issue but it's just a real shame that we're going to go down the mouth there's not going to be eight of us you know ah there's there's not gonna be nine of us and we got a different formation so it still looks symmetrical you know most people wouldn't have known i'm sure they would have done eventually but it's just wouldn't it have been cool to go down to nine? Anyway, we're kind of holding low over the sea. And then eventually on the radio pops up and um, Steve Morris is like, boss, where are you? Could be called Red One Boss. And this guy, he's like, I'm here. He's like, right, I'm here. Boom. And out of nowhere, underneath the formation comes comes uh, Steve Morris skidding across right to position. He's like, oh, you legend. And not long after that, we rolled out and headed in. Now, we went in over Kent and from Kent, all the way through to Oxfordshire after the fly pass, there was just camera flashes going off the whole way. Wow. People would just come out and then it was unbelievable. There was just people, well, yeah, it was unbelievable because when you see, think how many people are going to be there, all the flashes going off, it was awesome. And we kind of rolled off and we started heading down into London. And ahead of us, I'm sure you remember, was that a really awesome, like, the, well, everyone did a fantastic job. I mean, yeah. you look at every single formation and it was, had it just been a formation by itself? would have been really cool the fact that we put so many formations together that 100 and i think it was 103 airplanes for it, it was supposed wow. to be 100 but because that yeah you know, like with everything we always have spare airplanes in case there's an issue with any of the others yeah so i think there was a call made fairly last minute to put the spares in as well awesome so I, think, I think you'll find it's something like 103 airplanes but it was you know 100 airplanes over buckingham palace to uh celebrate the 100th anniversary of the air force like pretty big deal and as we're running in there should have been, and I can't remember the exact number. I think it was like 20, 20 plus typhoons that made that big 100 <laughs> in the sky. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just awesome. I mean, if there'd been three, it'd been cool, but there was like 20 odd. 
And I don't know if you remember that had that immaculate. I mean, I think they personally, I think they stole the show with that. It was that was there after that. It was their fly past. I mean, those yeah. boys must have to to get all those airplanes serviceable to fly, get all those pilots in a position where it looked immaculate, and then to turn up on time. You know, to to roll out this huge formation and fly it down the mall spanning out 100 i mean yeah they, they smashed it and uh anyway we were rolling out we were running in sorry and we could kind of see in the distance you know the heavies that were about where london is because you start to see the silhouette of london yeah uh, to the west of us as we're running in but we just for the life of us we couldn't see these typhoons and we're thinking right there's 26 typhoons around here like where are they and then the next thing you start thinking is shit we've got our times wrong you know if we can't see them the chances are we're in the wrong place, even though it's what you do. And I, I don't know how many people think this. And it's, it's not quite, it's, well, it's not imposter syndrome, but it's that healthy check of going, it's probably me. Yeah. <laughs> so we're sat there and I remember thinking, oh no. And you could see um, Red One, you know, a few jets inside. He was kind of going through his GPS, which is in front of his face, looking at it. You could see him looking at his watch. Then he started asking some other guys, look, can you just check your timings? Because then we thought, uh-oh, have our GPS is, have we got a GPS issue here? Have yeah. we hacked the, and we're running in. And everyone's like, no, boss, it's good. Like, we're good. Like, he, he knew he was in the right place. We're backing him up saying, no, boss, you're all over this. The timing's spot on. And he's like, well, where the hell are 26 typhoons? Then we start thinking like, oh, no, I hope they're not late. And then, because that would be <laughs> awkward then. But then we could spin maybe behind them. I, I, anyway, all of a sudden, one of the boys went, boss, tally right, two o'clock. And all the boys look right, two o'clock. And I, I get goosebumps now telling you this there was this 100 in this right-hand turn. Wow. Right, and about, well, it must have been a couple of miles, but I mean, this thing, looked, it looked like they're about half a mile. There were so many of them. And they kind of just rolled. They, they're in this right-hand turn. They just come on in a slightly different heading from us initially, right? So as they rolled in, they rolled out in front of us. And this 100, um, this 100 just kind of, you know, the left-hand wing came down and boom, there they were in front of us, 26. Or I think it was 26, 20-odd typhoon. And like we were then in their wake. So the boss had to move us up and down a little bit just to stay out their wake. <laughs> but it was just, I mean, that happened out of sight from anyone. Do you know what I mean? It was just to see that happen. Yeah. It was just awesome. And then obviously then we start, we hit East London. So we went over Stratford, saw the Olympic Park, went over Canary Wharf. And then you start seeing all the buildings, saw the eye, and then you could just see them out. And then the mall was just nuts. Like you couldn't see the, the surface of the ground. It was just people everywhere. Um, and then, yeah, the boss, the boss screams smoke on go. So everyone's kind of buzzed up anyway. And then he shouts color on go. And you're just powering off down the mouth with your color streaming out behind you. Wow. And there's Buckingham Palace straight over the top. It was just, yeah, it was so cool. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. In fact, it's one of my, one of my proudest pictures on the wall. That's so, so cool. And how does that compare to the American trip then that you did? Uh, well, that's pretty special, especially more poignant now that Her Majesty is no longer with us, you know, to, to know she was on the balcony looking up with that. That was always a special moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was different. You know, they've got their own teams out there. You know, they've got the Thunderbirds, they've got the Blue Angels, they've got loads of little civilian display teams. Uh, and, you know, they're like, you know, who are these guys? You know, even though we, we are recognised by the community, there's lots of people out there who have no idea who the Brits are and in terms of their display team. Um, and so, yeah, we got some, some amazing feedback. But I think I think a million people turned up to the Chicago Air Show. I think someone said maybe two million people turned up over the weekend to the uh, Pacific Air Show, which was done uh, Huntington Beach, just south of LA. 
Uh, and I don't know if you've seen the documentary, but you know, it's, we were there was a bit of an inside joke. Every time we landed, the TV crews would come up, goes, "Oh, how was that?" And everyone would be like, "Oh, it's amazing! It's the best trip I've ever done." <laughs> and then the next day, you'd get the jump out the jet, and the film crew would come up, "Oh, it's amazing! The best trip I've ever done." It's like, but it was true. It's like I cannot believe. <laughs> that for three and a half months, we essentially consistently kept flying the best trips we've ever done. I mean, you know, we went over to the, the trip over itself had some level of um, uh, risk to it, you know, with single engine aircraft over large trips of um, water as we went over the North Atlantic. Yeah. We stopped in, well, we stopped in the mo- our first stop. Everyone laughs. Like we left Scampton on this massive America tour and our first stop was Scotland. But, you know, <laughs> we're, only, we're only little airplanes. So we got to get far. But, you know, then we went into to, uh, Iceland and into Greenland and then into Canada and away down. So, you know, we were just seeing some amazing sights. And then we just started flying. We did, uh, I'm trying to think, I can't even put it into order, but, you know, we did a low level flight past of Niagara Falls. Wow. We, twice in fact that's a cool story we, we actually uh we we did a fly past of niagara falls the kind of airspace had been secured for us and we were then going to go off and land in toronto and we did this this right hand turn and you know niagara falls i was on the left wing so looking down niagara falls are kind of like racing past your head we rolled out and disappeared and then the boss after everything yeah after we do um major fly pasts or displays the boss will always say fuel check so that everyone he knows where everyone's fuel is and therefore he knows how to recover aircrafts appropriately you know expeditiously and safely back to the field and he said uh, can i get a fuel check and before anyone could say what fuel they had i can't remember who did it someone piped up and said i've got enough to do that again <laughs> and he was like yep come in left now yeah, we went round and did it again it awesome. awesome yeah i mean it was just it was just how quickly whoever said it said it and then the boss went yeah you're right we're not going to get this opportunity again the airspace is still ours let's go back and say hello to niagara falls for a second time so wow you know just an amazing moment but you know we flew down down the hudson right down from uh new york state we went right down through manhattan with the thunderbirds about a mile so cool. went down to the um the Statue of Liberty flew around it, came back up. We did a fly pass for um, Mount Rushmore, you know, where the president's face is. Yeah. We did a fly pass for the St. Louis Arch. We did a fly pass, um, you know, below because we're in the valley, but below the uh, Hollywood sign. We did a mixed formation fly pass with um, the Thunderbirds down Huntington Beach, but we also joined Cosmic Girl, which is the Virgin Atlantic 747 that launches the, the rockets into space. Yeah. Uh, we landed at Boeing Field in Seattle. We did a um, like a semi-display fly past in Vancouver Harbor. Which, I mean, it goes on. I mean, we were in Ohio. We did, uh, mate, it just goes on and on. We did New York show. We did the sh- uh, Chicago was crazy because you threw the skyscrapers. Toronto, again. In fact, Toronto was a cool day out because, um, uh, well, some of the boys flew with the Blue Angels, which was also very, very yeah. cool. Um, but I, I was lucky enough to be selected to fly with the Snowbirds, the Canadian team. Oh, wow. That was a cool day. So on the same day, I, I, I went into work early and briefed with the Canadians. Um, I'd briefed already with the boss and what we were up to. Yeah. And then I went to work, briefed the Canadians. I sat in their aircraft for their display. And then when we landed, uh, the guy flew me. We walked straight over to our boss, the Red Arrows boss, had a quick chat, see if there had been updates. I hadn't jumped in our jet and went and flew. So in the same international air show in Toronto, I flew in two different display teams. The <laughs> so cool. Snowbirds, the Snowbirds and the Reds, of which I was a passenger and one watching him do his thing. And then he sat in my jet while I flew him. And we're talking, you know, an hour difference. It was, yeah, it was epic. It was really, really cool. So yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. So that's what my, oh, we did. Oh, I'll tell you what was really cool. I nearly forgot that. We did um, 
Miramar Families Day. So you know where Top the original Top, Top Gun film. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We turned up there and we flew a show, and something like seven hundred thousand people turned up to that show. Wow! So we're in San Diego, seven hundred thousand people. We're at the home of Top Gun. The Blue Angels were there. We were there. It was just in fact that show was cool. The guy I took a guy with me on that display, who had been the boss of Top Gun when it was an F fourteen squad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, and this is what I mean. It sounds, each one of these stories is ridiculous in their own right. And uh, we were just doing it day after day after day after day. I think we were there for three, three and a half months in total. And I can't, I don't think we were anywhere much more than four or five nights. And maybe even some, t- some places only like, you know, we were up in, oh, we did a fly past of uh, Golden Gate Bridge. So we we're in Oakland for a night, um, you know, like low level fly past. It just, yeah. it was just so accommodating to what we wanted to do and and and, and what we went off and did. It was just and that was just the shows, you know, some of the places we just transited through, you know, I, I can't even remember half of them. It's just, we'd land in these lights, you know, off like Salt Lake city, or, or we'd land in Denver or, and do a fly pass for their military Academy. And then off to Seattle and oh, Portland air show as well was another cool one. You know, the home of Nike up there. It's just, oh, it's just ace. I mean, so, I, here we go. I, I could, and it's, it's hard to kind of quantify it because it's, it was just a crazy couple of months, but yeah, the running joke was every time the camera crew asked us what, how that trip was, it was the best trip we'd ever had. And actually, <laughs> nine times out of ten, it genuinely was. So yeah. It was, it was an epic. Dan, that's great. It sounds like you've had an absolute amazing time around that. And then, like you said as well, you had the trip over there. You've then got to turn around and bring the Jets back again, which is, again, a feat in itself. So even though you've done this massive tour, you've still got this big thing back across. Um, And one thing I've noticed as well, because that was your last year in the Reds. Yeah. And it must be really hard because I've, I've spoken to a couple of Red Arrows now and everyone kind of their last year, they kind of just leave the RAF. And is it hard to go back to a normal squadron after that? No, it's not. No. And I think, unfortunately, it's just some timing for people. I, the big thing is because you need so many out flight hours, um, t- guys, now there's because the simulators are getting so good uh, because um, of a bunch of other stuff in terms of how expensive some assets can be to fly versus how many, how, you know, how many assets we actually have. Pilots are flying less and less. Um, yeah. It doesn't make, make them any less potent uh, because as I say, the simulators are so good uh, yeah. and you can link simulators with other simulators from around the world. So these large force exercises I mentioned before, you can do those um, from home. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there, as you imagine, these simulators are great. You know, if you look at uh, Civvy Street um, in terms of how airlines work, it, it's, you have to have done simulators before you can actually go and fly into some of these airports. You know, the simulator training is just so good. So the point being is that the flying rate might be down, even though the pilot is still highly trained and highly effective, but it just means that it can take a little bit longer to get those 1500 hours, as I've mentioned, which is the minimum amount of flight hours you needed to be in the team. So what's the knock on? The knock on is guys are now probably a bit older, probably coming towards the end of their careers anyway. So uh, it's, it tends to be a natural, uh, decision point to leave you know it's not and and a lot of us have come from being either weapons instructors or flight instructors on hawks or typhoons or tornadoes and you know f-35s now so guys had done a lot already yeah guys have been flying fighters 10 12 years before they get to the red so another three years you've been in the service about 15 16 years which is a natural point anyway to start yeah you're now getting to your mid-30s you're going to commit to a full life in the service which is amazing and there's a lot of incredible men and women that do that and yeah, that's how the keeps getting led to, to, to the standards being led to. Or do you think, right, I'm now getting to my mid-30s, 40s. If I'm going to have another career, now's the time I've got to go. Yeah. 
that's that's why i i don't think it's because it's different to go back to the air force there's a lot of uh, red arrows who stay in and do a lot of stuff and have gone on to quite uh senior roles and ranks and so it's not it's not it's not that it's not the fact that oh my god you know we've been amazing we've lived this incredible life i can't I can't possibly go back to, to being on, you know, and, and the other thing I need to say as well, you know, I, I know loads of guys who are on squadrons who are, who are a much better pilot than me. And people think that the red arrows are the best nine pilots in the air force. And that's not the case. You know, they, they're guys who want to do it. So not all pilots want to do it. So some of the most exceptional pilots actually think they get more, uh, they feel it's more rewarding sitting on frontline squadrons, either going on operations or teaching future fighter pilots to be the best they can be. So there's a, there's an element of guys who don't even apply. Uh, and then there are some guys who, who might apply, but actually their, their mindset and where they are is better on the frontline doing that job. And, you know, the, as I said, quite a few to quite a few people, it's not the nine best pilots in Air Force, but it's the nine best, it's the nine pilots that work best together. Yeah. Uh, and so you make, you make an amazing team. So, the fact is you could go back and still work with you know, very, very high caliber people. Um, and you know, the job there was awesome. You know, had I not been at the stage of my life where I was as with some personal stuff as well, I would have, um, yeah, I would have come back and I did try, I tried to stay in the air force for a bit. I was actually going to go to the, um, multi-engine fleet because oh, I felt wow, okay. yeah, I ticked, I ticked the fighter pilot box for a bit and now I need to go and fly multi-engine airplanes, get used to flying, uh, say multiple engines, but also multiple crew members build mm -hmm. up that CRM stuff, fly a heavier airplane. And then maybe that might be put me in a position, you know, in five, six years time that maybe I could go off into the airline world and, you know, be, be relevant there. Cause that was always kind of where I was going to go. Uh, but an opportunity came up and that opportunity was to go and fly a private jet and they were going to pay for the training. It's all the time. So, you know, sometimes in life, these opportunities come up when you least expect them. Yeah. Uh, and there's many sleepless nights working if you're making the right decision. And, you know, having been in the service for 16, 17 years, you know, the initial thoughts are feeling disloyal or, you know, letting the team down, but then actually realize that you've got to look after yourself sometimes. And, yeah. and so for me, where I wanted to go in the future, that was the right decision. So each, and I can imagine if you ask the guys, each one of them would have probably a similar story. I don't think anyone's left because they're like, oh, I'm leaving because, you know, it just wouldn't be great to go back to it. It's just, they've done it. They've had a great time, but they're now in a position where, yeah, they've got wives, kids, they're at a certain point in their life where they want a second career. So actually, unfortunately, the the option is to to leave. Yeah. Uh so it's quite quite interesting to, to hear someone actually talk about it that way. Um and when you you got got to this private jet, is there a is there a bit where you're like, oh, I, I really miss I don't know, I don't want to use the word, is there a sadness? But is there a bit where you're like, oh, I'm not flying a, a red jet anymore? No, I honestly I don't think that has been I mean, clearly. Yes, I jump in a red jet again tomorrow. I jump yeah. in a typhoon again tomorrow. It'd be cool. Yeah, that's what it's. Sorry, that, I think I phrased that wrong. As in, is there a point where you've you've just played with some of the best technology there is, the best hardware, the best weapon systems, and now you're flying an aircraft that shouldn't really pull over three G? Yeah, uh, but again, I don't know. Yeah, but but now you can. Now you've got a coffee machine and an onboard <laughs> toilet, so you know you've got to take the rough with the smooth. Um, but I was very lucky. I went to an aircraft, the G six, which is a you know. An incredibly advanced airplane anyway so the kit on there if you're into that stuff the technology on that airplane is amazing you know it was high it was fast uh, we went to exotic locations you know a lot of stuff that you do in the fast jet world is you normally land on the runway you've taken off from so you know that concept of you're always on this like rubber band and you might go away for a few hours but come back um so it's very exciting the couple of times a year that you actually get to go on major exercises or operations around the world 
Um, but now every time we take off, we go somewhere. So there's that element to it. So that's quite exciting. You're always yeah. landing on a different airfield. You're going away for two weeks at a time. You're, you know, you're going to uh, the fast, you're going to the Caribbean or you're going to India. And then when you go to India, you're flying to all the little regions around it. So yeah, there was that kind of element. To it. It's just a totally different mission. Um, and it's cool. You know, you, you're taking this uh, expensive aircraft that is highly capable with some VIPs down the back and making sure that you do the best job for them uh, and delivering them all around the world on time again. So there's a lot of aspects you can take from that job to it. Um, and the one thing it did do was free up more time. Yeah. And that's one of the things when you, when you're in the, in a high pressure dynamic environment, it normally does take up a lot of your time. And yeah. although I'm, you know, still late thirties, I've got much more, I'm, I'm looking for the next dynamic team to jump into. It's not that I'm want to get away from that but every now and then it's nice to buy a bit more of your time back. And so yeah. that's what this job has offered me. This job has offered me more freedom over my, my own time when, when I'm not in work. Uh, and that was something at the time that became more important to me. Twenties and thirties. Nah, I wouldn't, I all day long, I'd turn up and fly jets for you. You just get to a point in life. Sometimes you think, right, I just need to, just need to buy back a bit of time. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes. Yeah. I can't roll this thing upside down as much as I'd love to. I can't uh, fly the tornado with Smythe in front and the boys out the front, which I would love to do again. I'd love to fly corkscrew again. I'd love to do a performance takeoff in a typhoon. I'd love to go supersonic again. Um, all these things are awesome but they're actually when you look at what you have to give to be in that environment you 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 give a lot and yeah you know, that's why i take my hat off to all the boys and girls who are still doing it because they're that level of sacrifice to be at the top of their game uh, and do that is incredible and so they deserve all the joy of flying those aircraft in those environments yeah uh, and so i i i'd made the decision that actually i need to i need to sort other things out which meant that you know, I only now get the joy of a G6, which is still epic. <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird to hear say I only get the joy of the G6. So. <laughs> yeah, I know, tongue in cheek. I love that airplane. That airplane is such a smart airplane. You know, that thing flies at, you know, 90% of the speed of sound uh, at 50, wow. 51,000 feet if you wanted to. The cabin pressure is about 3,800 feet, you know. So, no way. So you feel yeah, really so, fresh. Oh, super fresh. You know, guys are in double beds down the back or they're watching... Um, live te- they're streaming netflix on onboard wi-fi you know and, and what what you're also doing in that job is you're taking some very important people who are the champions of certain parts of industry and taking them to parts of the world that you know connects british business to to india or to south america or you know to anywhere in europe and you're taking these people who are making huge decisions uh, that are affecting massive corporations with thousands of thousands of people working in them but also you know, have play a part in, in UK industry. So again, there's that level to it as well. And yeah, you've got the Union Jack flying around some of the stuff with the British business. So you still have that element of pride. And then, you know, there is a lot of pressure to make sure you're taking off on time, that you, you're fitting into the air picture, you're getting them on the ground on time so that they're they're effective and fresh. And then you get them back in the jet, you go somewhere else. You know, you can't be messing about with, oh, no, another 10 minutes here or there with these yeah. people. So there, there is still a big time pressure there with these people because, you know, it's their airplane. And yeah you need to make sure it's it's working as they expect it to work so which is cool i mean obviously it has its stresses and strains but the overall side of it is that you get to fly one of the best private jet aircraft in the world to some of the most exotic locations and that's good by me yeah that's very very cool and you mentioned working in high pressure environments and i think this is the other thing that you do as well on the side is you you're a keynote speaker, but you talk about operating at high pressures, which I think after everything you've told us so far, there's no one really more qualified to talk about it than yourself. Can you give us an idea of like what, how we can put what you've experienced and working at high pressure into like an everyday normal life? 
Yeah, of course. I, yeah, there's, there's, as I say, all, everyone that I've worked alongside of has worked in that environment. Um, and it's just that I, I like talking to people about it because I feel I did do it to a certain level that it would be a shame just to close the chapter on that side of my life and just look back at the pretty pictures when there's so many lessons that people can learn through either your failures or your experiences or you know, your points of view on stuff. You know, we look at, um, you know, our grandparents and think, oh, they're so wise, you know, and because it's, they've been through it and it's not that I'm saying I'm wise and I've got all the answers. It's just that kind of level of, you know, through experience being exposed to stuff, I found the work for me didn't. So yeah, for me, you know, things I talk about there is about having a vision. A lot of the time, having a vision for me is the number one thing. You know, that was a thing from a child that I used to always plant at the forefront of mind. What would it be like to be a fighter pilot? How would it feel down to like, you know, who would be the, who would be my friends? It sounds really weird, but who am I going to like hang out with? Yeah. And then as you go through flying training, you start imagining what it must be like to strap into these airplanes. And you start imagining when you get to the squadron, what it must be like to lead formations. Then you start thinking, well, what would it be like to be in the Reds? And, you know, what would it be like to fly that show in that position? So you've always got that vision and, and that kind of vision keeps, keeps stoking the flames for you to realize why you want to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then it's about, you know, having, really clear defined values uh, and because with the values once you've got those in line for whatever they might be for you that that will then drive your behaviors so if one of your values is i don't know integrity that means well i'm never going to lie to anyone so actually then you start behaving in a in a way where you're honest and you're accountable and you make sure that actually i've got to rather than tell someone i'm not um, yeah, how many times do we say we're late? We go, yeah, yeah, I've just left. I'm just in the car now. But actually, yeah. you get the keys to get in the car, right? Yeah, it sounds ridiculous, but those kind of behaviors change. You, you want to be on time for someone, you're going to leave early because you, you told them you're going to be there. So your level of integrity is that I'll never be late again. So your behavior changes. And there's all sorts of examples from that. But that kind of behavior then drives a culture. And that culture is, it doesn't have to be a personal culture. Culture is a bit of a buzzword, means something different to so many different people. But the point is, if you're that way inclined with your vision and your values and behaviors, if you then bring that to a team or an environment and that culture over time will change to replicate that. Uh, and so that's the kind of stuff I, I talk about. And it's just basically being very, very clear and unrelenting in, in getting there. Cause if you, if you sit down with your team and say, right, what values do we hold to us? Cause this is what we did in the reds. Well, this is what we do. We're always on time. Uh, we're ambassadors, you know, the, weapon school talk about being humble approachable credible you know their mm -hmm. values so yeah great that means that we'll have to act a certain way which means that already if if it was you and i on the team and i wasn't behaving appropriately you could come to me and say you know damn like that you were late then that's not that's not on i didn't need the boss to tell me because the the rest of the guys around me would tell me that and so therefore all of a sudden we've got a culture that has been created from those behaviors and and that's that's kind of stuff and we de i delve deeper into that I talk about you know the continuum improvement side of things which was uh, your ability to debrief or ability to basically embrace failing and see failure as a good thing because then you can learn and you come back faster and stronger i talk about effective communication how you know different ways it's easy just to talk but if i'm just talking stuff at you and it's not being received because either it's not being explained properly or you're not listening because i haven't created the environment that, for you to sit in and listen then you know that's not going to work so i i kind of bring those all into a into a package and and talk to different people or go and do workshops with with corporations and i'm thinking about getting a bit more into like maybe some like personal mentoring and coaching some you know in personal stuff i'm working on to get myself into that into that space at the moment so, but i i enjoy it i just think it'd be be such a shame to have been exposed to this all and then just yeah, I've got to be very careful. I don't want it just to be, hey, look at me and all my fancy holiday pictures of when I was in the Reds and hey, look, you know, I was a red arrow, I was still walking a lunge. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's all about, 
yeah and it is difficult yeah and but a lot of the a lot of the things i'm talking to you there i learned about in the weapons school or i learned about being on frontline squadron so it's not just about being the reds the reds helped because that was the epitome of it of in my opinion an excellent high performing team uh, and it's just nice that we can use that as a platform but yeah that, that's that's kind of the stuff i'm working on the side brilliant and how would i don't know if any businesses or business owners do listen to this podcast but if, if they were to try and get hold of you and want you to do the talk how would they get uh, well, hold of you to do it yeah uh, well the there's a couple of ways uh please have a look at me on instagram which is uh dan underscore lows or linkedin or if you want to find me an email if you don't mind just drop them in the uh, show notes. Not at all. That'd be great. Um, and a website's just about to come online. So uh, I'll leave that for now just because I'll find people going to the website and going, oh, it's not there. So I'll leave that for now. But yeah. in the next few weeks, the um, the website will be up and running. So hopefully if you, if I'll push it all out on all my social media. So once it's there, people will be able to link up. Um, and if they want to, yeah, as I say, just just find me an email or send me a message on, on any social media, find me on and we could talk further. That'd be great. Brilliant. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time out this morning to come and have a chat with us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Oh, mate, the pleasure's been all mine. Thank you very much. It's been uh, mate, what a great morning. So thank you. No worries at all. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed that episode and are new here and haven't heard the rest, please do go back and have a look at the others. There are some great interviews there with some fantastic aviators. If you are a regular here, then you'll look forward to the next episode. Thank you for joining in and we hope to see you soon again on Everything Aviation Podcast.